0: Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, picture this. It's the middle of winter. There's snow outside. You probably have a cold like I do. And you like shooting. But, you know, now you you can go shooting out in the snow. We're not saying that it's impossible to go shooting out in the snow. But a lot of times, you get up and it's dark out. You go to work, and that's when it's actually light out, and then when you're done with work, it's dark out again. At least that's how it is in Wisconsin. I know that for a fact. So it's tough to go out and go shooting as much as you would ordinarily get to in the summer or the spring and parts of the fall, too. So we were talking about this a little bit. Actually, we've talked about it. I think Scott briefly brought it up. Scott Parks brought it up. I've talked about it here, and Mark and I have talked about it here with, with Ruben and Adam, who join us today. Actually, Adam, we're going to have to have you introduce yourself, too, but basically, we're going to talk about what you can do to stay sharp on your shooting skills when it's the winter so you don't come out in the spring shooting like I do, which is basically terrible. And, yeah, you know, just basically staying sharp. Maybe even coming out of the winter, a better shooter. Who knows? But first off, like we said, you've all met Ruben before. Adam, you have been on, well, you've been on, you know, many podcasts in the past. But this is your first time on this podcast. So, for our listeners, how about a quick intro?
1: Well, yeah, first uh, first time on the Thunderdome. so. I am a member of the consumer sales team here at Vortex Optics, and then in my personal life, I'm also a, a three-gun shooter. I've shot at the pro level for a few years and and uh, been a match director and things like that for, for years before that, so been have been very active in the, the action shooting scene, both in three-gun, USPSA, and, and IDPA for several years.
2: And tactical shotgun. Oh,
1: yeah. Did that did the tactical shotgun thing, too, when it was cool.
2: Definitely. It's not cool anymore?
3: Yeah,
1: that's,
0: that's a whole another story. Ooh, ooh, sounds sounds like another podcast. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Man, who
0: knows? <laughs> Write that down. So, Ruben and Adam are both very experienced shooters, very good shooters. I think um, both of them are too humble to ever let you know it, uh, but they are very good shooters, and I, I know that they do a lot of shooting year round. What are you guys' thoughts? First off, on you know just the idea of you know staying sharp in the winter. I mean, for you guys, is it even a is it even something you consciously think of, or is it is it actually you know it's Seem to me like worthwhile talk to talk about, but well, yeah. I
2: mean, is there an off season for you guys? Well, up here in the Great White North, up north, we don't have the shoot year round ability as much as our southern compadres do. Yeah, right? some
0: people in Arizona and Texas are probably like, "What the hell are they talking about right now?"
2: Yeah, so it's different based on your location in the country and in the world. But really, if you're anywhere north of Kansas, you know, any of the guys in the Northeast, any of the guys in the Northwest. Like, you understand that once October, November rolls around, getting outside and doing the stuff that we do all summer becomes a lot more difficult. And, you know, it's a, it's not like we're all judged on a different scale. It's not like we shoot different matches than the guys down south. But we have that time where we have to drastically change everything we do. Because those guys are and girls are getting to shoot year-round, right? And so... Yeah, it is important. And when you say stay sharp, it's interesting because there's a lot of ways to look at that. Like I know that when we're limited by weather, we actually get to do some of the things that people down South never do. Right. So the joke is like dry fire. What's dry fire? Like our friends in Texas will say that. And uh, (laughs) they don't
1: know what that is. And you know,
2: dry fire is one of those essential parts of staying sharp, whether it be hunting, competitive shooting, self-defense, you need to know your gun, your grip, your trigger, you're able to focus on your stance, all of that stuff. And so in in a way, like we're actually advancing certain skills or refreshing certain skills. But there is that aspect of we don't get to be on the clock as much as our friends down
3: south do. Right. You guys get to dance in the mirror more before you go to the club. Yep. yep. That's Got a it. great way of putting it, Mark. Got it. Thanks
0: for Thanks for bringing that up. Now, dry firing, you bring up first. Actually, that's even the first thing I had. On my list here, dry firing. Now, it's something to be taken seriously. It's not just what people do when they get a brand new gun. They start kind of, we call it around here, I don't even know if I can say this on the podcast, yeah, finger banging. There you go. I said it. You did. When you're sick, you lose your filter. I, I'm going to say that. It fell It fell right out. It does. So so dry firing, it is something to be taken seriously now. That's that's kind of what you guys are saying. And, and we should note, too, we're talking to two, three gunners here, but but I think this this also applies to long-range shooters, too, right? So yeah. we'll try and make this all-encompassing. What is it about dry firing that's so important? How do you go about doing it properly so you're not just kind of slapping the trigger randomly in your basement? Like, like, what should you be doing when you're actually, like, training by dry firing?
1: I think there's two big components to it if you look at it on a macro scale. Basically, what we're talking about is being plugged into the interface, right? So you want to be connected to your gun, know what your gun feels like, how you interact with the gun, and then shooting itself is a very visual sport, so you want to maintain or enhance the link between visually what you see and then your, your hand-eye coordination and what it's doing in the gun. So you want to be familiar with the gun, and then you want the gun linked to what you're visually seeing and connecting those two. And that's what you do through dry fire is is connecting those two.
0: We should also clarify, dry firing is firing the gun without... Is it without ammunition, or does it count as dry firing if you have like blanks in there? I think it
2: depends on who you are. Some guys will... Put a snap cap in the gun and use that because I think it damages the firing pin to drive dry fire. Others will not use mm, anything. In the gun. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like for example, now I, I don't mean to go too off on a tangent, but what if you're like a rim fire shooter? You're not supposed to dry fire those, right?
2: Old rim fire firearms, uh, they really recommend it. Like I would say, anything uh, older than like 1995, they would say you shouldn't. But you know, and why is that? There's a the chamber of a like a 22 rim fire. Right, we'll use that as an example the extractor actually has to get in really close into the chamber so there's a cut typically on the right side of the chamber and it's not it doesn't go into the chamber but it's right next to it so it's this little kind of triangular cut that your extractor goes into when you put a round into battery and when you shoot that firing pin hits pretty consistently right there okay mm-hmm. and if you do that without a brass cartridge in the in the case that firing pin, which is usually a hardened steel, will hit your barrel, which is also a type of hardened steel, and it can cause a dent in that, and it can deform bullets as you put it into battery. So, typically, yeah, it's a good practice to not dry fire a rim fire cartridge.
3: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that. I mean, you always hear that, like, don't dry fire, rim fire. So, I've yeah. never done it, but I never really asked myself why. Yeah, just yeah. Just don't do it. The so,
1: metallurgy on the older guns, too, and the older center fire guns, too, it wasn't good for them. Uh, just because of the materials they were using at the time and the designs that they were using at the time, that would wear on guns. But everything post 1970, it's pretty safe to dry fire, center, center fire. fire to dry fire, pretty much as much as you want, and you're you're not gonna hurt. Really, all you're doing is putting putting reps on your springs,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: is springs wear out every time they oscillate. So every time a spring cycles, that's what decreases the life of a spring. So you're going to wear out your springs eventually to the tune of Fifty thousand reps or whatever yeah. it is, but other than that, like the the macro machine steel parts of the gun, you're not you're not going to hurt them to to an appreciable degree.
0: Okay, and what is it too? Isn't there that thing where it's like every CZ pistol or something like that? Don't they go through like a bazillion dry fires? Or... They have like a machine. <laughs> like uh, it's
2: either a thousand or ten thousand dry fire cycles, but it's also a slide cycle. So it's dry fires. It cycles the slide, resets the hammer. Dry fires, cycle slide, and it's they do an extensive. Military Arms Channel just did a video. Yeah, where he was out uh, at the CZ factory and showed their extensive dry fire procedure. But you it's know pretty what? Pretty cool. Their guns are pretty nice when you get them out of the box.
3: Well, I was, was going to yeah. ask. I mean, you know, you talk about a spring wearing out, but in essence, are you wearing something in a little bit too at the oh, same yeah. time?
1: Oh yeah, especially sure. especially a more shall we say economical firearm. You know, that got through the factory. They had a little bit looser tolerances on it. The the hand fitting on it wasn't as wasn't the same. That you get on a $5,000 custom made pistol. Mm -hmm. I mean, every one of those cycles that, you know, wears down the metal a little bit so that the edges are a little bit smoother and, and things like that. So you're, you're breaking it in to, to a certain extent.
0: Oh yeah. 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 So dry firing now, what does that look like when you're in a training situation? I could see potentially two different ways of looking at this. Like I could see there's like the, okay, I'm going to get in the zone and get really calm. I'm going to you know really focus on how i'm breaking the trigger all these things but then i could also see if you're a competitor who's on the clock also practicing dry firing in a more rushed situation so what is that what is
2: everybody look like? everybody has a different regimen right if you think about somebody who is serious about working out like they know thursday is this day friday is this day right they go to the gym with a plan typically they're working on isolating a certain muscle or a certain skill or something I would say anybody who shoots and anybody who dry fires is obviously trying to get better at shooting. And so they probably have the same plan. Like if you were to go to the range and say, okay, Tuesday, I'm going to focus on 50 yard pistol, single round engagements from my holster on the the clock. And so the same goes with dry firing. You're going to have a plan of what you need to work on. Sometimes you work on draws, sometimes time doesn't matter, but you literally you tell yourself, "I'm not gonna break the shot until it's a perfect alpha," and sometimes you focus on speed. How fast can I get my first shot off from a draw? So it really depends on what your the goal is for that training session. And I would say for people who do dry fire, you know, I'll admit I don't dry fire enough. But if you do dry fire, you're gonna have specific goals that you're trying to accomplish in that training session. And sometimes that is speed. You know, sometimes it's if you watch a guy like Josh Tarrant or Josh Fralick you name any of the top competitors out there on the Instagram, right? They're, they're putting up videos of their practice sessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Josh,
0: I've watched a lot of his, he also has, he goes full bore. Like he's got a dump bucket in his basement and he like goes around poles and walls in his basement and does all that.
2: And Josh is a good example of a guy who uses dry fire as a method of practice when other methods aren't necessarily available. So he lives a good driving distance away from his range and so dry fire is his main practice. He probably does, and I can't speak for you, Josh, but I, I'm sure he does five to one dry fire sessions
3: versus range sessions where he's actually live firing. Hmm. Do you guys find there's a? Yeah, I mean, because you guys shoot a lot of three gun, right? So you know, you know, pistol, you know, AR, shotgun. Do you find that the dry firing practice is more beneficial with one? firearm versus the other, or firearm platform versus the other, or is it about the same?
2: It depends. You, you're going to work on whatever you need work on.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: um, I'll get to a point where the middle of the year, my pistol's pretty sloppy, and I need to go back to fundamentals, and so you know then I'm going to dry fire pistol. My particular rifle, rifle is kind of my game. That's something that I, uh, I take very seriously, and I do it well. So rifle, I don't work on as much. Here at work, I get a lot of chances to shoot rifle, too, taking customers to the range and stuff. And so every range session is a practice session, really is kind of my my thoughts. And so rifle just so happens to be the thing I don't dry fire as much. But, yeah, if I get back from a match where I shot offhand plate racks at 100 yards or 50 yards and I didn't shoot them very well, I'm going to dry fire. But one really important to think, and for anybody listening you know, know that dry fire isn't just, it's not about learning your trigger pull or your trigger press. It's, it's about seeing your sights mm-hmm. and knowing when to break that shot. And mm-hmm. so getting the trigger finger in time with your vision, in time with your grip and stance, and then breaking that shot when you know that shot is going to be where it needs to be. And that's the thing, right? If you pull up and draw real fast and you just hip shoot or whatever, it's like you don't know where your sights were. Same goes if you pull up and you draw and you focus on speed only, you really don't know. The dry firing isn't doing you any good because you could dry fire yeah. in a completely black room. If if all you needed to do is gain muscle memory on your trigger pull, then it's not doing anything for you. But this is all about seeing your sights and breaking a shot when your sights are where they need to be.
1: I think there's a micro and a mi- macro aspect to it too. And I think how much of each you do kind of depends on where you're at skill level wise. At the beginning you have, especially in action shooting, but also with the long range too, you have a lot of skills to learn. You have a lot of equipment to learn and you're, you're also playing with your setups too. So you're learning how to draw, you're practicing drawing, you're trying a new holster, you're trying a mag pouch position. You need to learn how to smoothly reload without bobbling it, how to mount a rifle and, you know, not catch it in your armpit and things like that. So there's like the the macro skills that you're trying to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a great way to learn those when you are trying to build skill. And, you know, the elephant in the room is that dry fire is free. It doesn't take ammunition. No matter who you are, ammunition supply is finite. Everybody has a different level of access to it, but nobody has unlimited access that I know of. So something you can do for free and you can work those skills without burning your ammo budget and then you also get to a point where once you've built those skills, you don't have to put in the same amount of hours to maintain them. But then you can also start to work on the visual interface of seeing the site, pressing the shot, mm-hmm. and then calling for yourself whether that was a good shot or not. And you can start to work on various things as, as you start to identify weaknesses that you want to improve on. But there's kind of Two aspects to it. There's the there's the gross motor skill, Mm -hmm. if you will, and then there's the really fine stuff too. And you can do a combination of both.
2: Like Jim, you're you know you built the rally car, right? Yeah. Your time in the shop building it is huge until it's done, and now it's oil changes, right? Right. That's kind of that's kind of what we're getting at is you're going to put in time based on what needs to be done. Your you know, dry fire. It's not just maintenance, but that's a lot of it is maintaining Mm -hmm. and building fundamentals.
0: What is, how do you determine what is what is a good shot? Like, when you say you call, like, whether that was a good shot or not. I'm picturing in my head, like, I'm a long-range guy. I'm looking down the scope. I pull the trigger. And maybe that one's a little bit easier for me to call a, mm-hmm. a good shot because I guess I'm looking through the scope. And, you know, I'm not doing, like, a from low ready or something like that or from a holster. But, like, can you tell, like... Okay, I pulled the trigger here. Hopefully, my hands didn't move. It looks like the
3: sight was in the right place. Mm-hmm. Like,
2: w- do you ever do you ever have it where Mark even in hunting, where when you break a shot, you're like, "Oh, that was a good shot. I know it was."
3: Oh, I've had those, and then yeah. you know, you know the reverse of that as well. Yeah, you know, oh. and that's I'd say everybody who shoots knows that,
2: and the precision guys know it really well too. Like, you just know, you just know because of the last image you saw before the gun moved, and yep. it's like. That's kind of what we're going off of. We have targets set up. Some, sometimes, you know, in a basement, like a, my basement isn't real big, so I have reduced size targets in my basement up on the wall. And, you know, like I know when that, when that hammer or striker fell, I know where that shot was going. Yep. And the only difference is that you don't have recoil.
3: Yep. Mm. And that's what I think you guys are touching on what I was going to ask too. Can dry firing show you things that you wouldn't see otherwise when you're doing Absolutely. live fire?
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I incorporated uh, a Mantis, uh, Mantis X training aid over the last year for my pistol dry fire. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is it's a sensor that has a couple of gyros in it that basically, and accelerometers in it and it clips to the pick rail of your pistol or rifle or shotgun. doesn't matter. And when it senses, it's in a constant recording mode and then it'll sense when you drop the hammer. Okay. And it goes back like a half a second and it, saves the movement that was happening up until that hammer fell. Huh. So it's, it's like a video recorder that's on a constant record, and then as soon as something happens, it saves a couple of seconds before. And so what you can do is it links to your phone, and basically when that hammer falls, it shows where your gun moved as soon as you broke the shot. Interesting. And so I know that if I'm shooting all 90s, 94s, 95s on my Mantis with my pistol, that it was a good dry-fire session because it meant that my grip was good, it meant my stance was good, it meant my my trigger press was good, and that I didn't jerk after I shot mm-hmm. too. So you can incorporate the aids of uh, like a Mantis uh, into your training regimen to, to know. Otherwise, you're kind of just going off of gut feeling.
3: Mm-hmm what's the scale on that? So you said like a 94, like what does that, what does that mean? Is that out of a hundred?
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a system. We could link the Mantis video if we wanted to this podcast too, um, to the show notes, but but yeah, yeah, it is, uh, out of a hundred, like you're basically anything in the nineties means that you hit the 10 ring of the target. Okay. And so as you start to move outside of there, you're going to start to lose points. Do you think
0: there's almost some aspect too of, of dry firing? That's almost, uh, it makes you somewhat blissfully unaware of recoil. Like, a lot of times people say, and this this might be a naive comment or something like that, but when you pull the trigger, you almost want the recoil to surprise you. You know, like, you want to pretend that it's not there so that way you don't flinch or try and counteract the recoil. You know, if you get used to dry firing, does it almost make you forget about the recoil such that it's not a big boogeyman in the back of your head? Does that have anything to do with it? Might be a dumb question, but...
1: I don't think so for me, because, I mean... I mean, we've shot enough to the point where I don't think anything about the gun surprises us anymore. Yeah, um,
2: you should know when the gun's going to go off. Yeah. You know, but, but yeah, it's <laughs> but recoil. It's... You ever see somebody shoot their last shot, and then you're like, oh, they're out. And you want to tell them, like, hey, you're out, but then you watch them pull the trigger again, and the gun goes like this. Like, dives. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They,
0: they like, jerk forward, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so what's happening there is muscle memory is telling them that when the gun goes off, these are the forces needed to counteract the recoil, Mm -hmm. right? And so their muscles are firing, right? Mm -hmm. Which isn't
0: exactly a bad thing, right? All right, it it happens. It's It's muscle memory,
2: but now take a guy who shoots a 9 a lot and give him a 40. He's not going to control the recoil as much as he should. And so your goal should be to control recoil, but it should also be to let the gun cycle and to
3: know where it's going to come back rather than really trying to fight it. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So that person isn't well, I feel like I just shouted there. Um, He's not necessarily like flinching or something like that. He's just kind of auto-correcting for
1: That's hard. You can't really recreate recoil in dry fire. Yeah. Dry fire is usually, I would say most of it is usually associated with some sort of manipulation. A good example would be a draw. So first shot out of a draw. You can dry fire that, and then you get to a point where, as you start to speed up your draw and break the first shot, you can be like, "Oh, that one was early." Yeah,
2: too or, fast.
1: Or you know, oh, I was there for a long time before I broke it. But you can kind of get to the point where where you're looking at the sight, and when and when the hammer snaps, you're like, "Where was the sight when that happened? Did I actually see the rear sight? Did I see the dot? You know, when when that hammer fell? Yeah. Or didn't it? And that's where you start to build the connection between what the hands doing and what's the, what the eyes doing. So, you know, in, in pistols, it's draws and reloads. In rifles, it's, you know, bolt manipulations or transitions between positions, transitions between guns, shotguns, it's off of reloads.
0: Yeah. I got one more question on dry firing. I know we talked a lot about dry firing, but I do think it's, it's a big one. We have tons more to talk about here, but let's say long range guys. Now, Scott Parks is mentioning how dry firing at a hundred yards is very nice to be able to do because you can see essentially through the scope what's happening downrange. Right, so if you pull the trigger and you notice that you go down into the right every single time you pull the trigger, you know, that's something you can hopefully see and correct. When you're indoors, I guess, do you guys have any Do you guys have any way to, you know, like... Pick very we, small things. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, because most people don't have a 100-yard corridor in their, in their house.
2: Yeah. But you just pick smaller things. Yep. Reduce Light switches, size targets, stuff like that. Shot
1: glasses, corners, corners of cabinets, rooms, picture frames, TVs the actual corners, I'll do like crisscross drills while I'm watching the TV. I, of course, verified my gun was unloaded and my TV was in front of a cement wall, but like, you know, I would go corner to corner on a TV while I was watching it. Or if you try to try to get a draw and snap the the hammer at something on a commercial, like a shape on, on a TV commercial is not on the TV for very long. Hmm. So if you can present and get a good shot on something that you see, you know, the phone number on the bottom of the screen or something like that, that's how you can start to do that. But it's it's picking things that are exponentially smaller than the actual target that you're going to shoot at because then you can pick up on the little things that you're doing. If you just shoot at a full-size IPSC target on your wall, it's not going to yeah. tell you a
0: whole lot. My wife is going to wonder what the hell's going on when she comes home. I'm just shooting at the TV. <laughs> hey, that's that was like... Me and the dog just hanging out. Four years ago, man, that was me. <laughs>
1: the TV watching was directly linked to dry fire. <laughs>
2: Perfect. I think that one other thing too is like you I'll use drive fire kind of like Adam mentioned as a part of something else so sometimes drive firing is loading my shotgun practice Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes drive firing is a functionality of you know loading a rifle and of course unloaded but inserting a magazine and getting back to your sight picture and then break a shot and so it's like I don't really care we can all shoulder a gun really fast but how how fast can you shoulder a gun and break an accurate shot so that's kind of mm-hmm. what we use dry fire as well uh, and then you know a big part of practicing and staying sharp as a competitive shooter is working on your mental game so like stage planning stuff like that and so what I'll do is come out of a draw with a pistol dry fire at one target insert a new magazine and then go to the second target and so you're kind of a lot of times in a three-gun match or a pistol match, or whatever, any type of competitive action shooting, you're going to have a stage plan of the order that you shoot targets in. You don't just run out and shoot them as you see them usually unless it's a blind stage. But you build and reinforce uh, your mental game in dry fire.
0: Yeah. You kind of went into it too a little bit of like the practicing transitions and things like that. Yeah. You know, practicing, I'm sure if you've got shotgun on a sling or something like that, a lot of times, and again, we'll bring him up, Josh Tarrant, you watch his Instagram page, and he knows what match he's going to and he knows that at that match you're going to have to carry around every everything on a sling whether it's your rifle or your shotgun so you see him you know goofing around with the sling he might do more dry firing with a with a sling that week or that month or whatever time yeah
1: especially sling matches because they're kind of niche when we were going to those matches we we would start playing around with slings a lot more when you knew that was coming and you could also quickly debunk some ideas of how you wanted to <laughs> carry it that weren't so hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if you look kind of on the tactical side of the world, like, you see all the kinds of setups people have, all their slings set up, and and we would look at that and be like, there's no way. Like, there's really about
0: three ways to do it.
2: I don't want that, that gun th- hitting me <laughs> in the back of the head while I'm running. Yeah. yeah. So
0: I guess then if you're in PRS, too, I know that they have to prepare for, you know, as Scott mentioned, shooting PRS or precision rifle out of a helicopter so you can just rent a helicopter for it end dry fire out of a helicopter. Right. Um, Nick had to build a fort one time, so you can just build forts in your basement. That's good stage planning and, and, and dry fire. Practices. Exactly. And just fun. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about like actual shooting too that you can do because you can yeah. you can still actually shoot oh, in yeah. winter. You're not limited to only dry firing. Now you guys do, and I've seen actually a bunch of guys around the office do pistol leagues mm-hmm. and USPSA. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a U.S. Pistol uh, United States Practical Shooters Association. Just, yes. Yes. That it
2: was Pisa. So, explain what is it? Well, if if you're fortunate to have an indoor range, an indoor shooting facility, and a local club that uh, is a USPSA or IDPA club uh, or UML club, uh, you might find that on a Tuesday or Wednesday night that they've got some organized shooting going on. We have we're very very fortunate to have a couple of clubs locally here that do that. And so, uh, when we get into the season where our fellow shooters down south and uh In other areas are getting to shoot outdoors we're we're doing it indoors and uh we take that opportunity sometimes to focus on other guns I know Adam will shoot like a single stack uh gun in the winter sometimes I'll shoot you know production, which is you know kind of an unmodified off the shelf striker fired pistol but usually we're we're using those those indoor leagues to focus on skills that are things that go away. You know the the shooting a rifle offhand, we can do that with a PCC now indoors. Pistol um, caliber carbine. Yep. Right. Yep. So we'll focus on that a little bit. I'll I'll have individual personal goals of things that I need to do and things that I sucked at during the year, which there are plenty of them. So it's usually there's a long list, and it's like, well, all right, I'm going to start here. But yeah, you have goals, and it's it's a really good way to get reps in.
1: And as an enthusiast, and. Also, as someone who's who's been an event promoter, really excites me because it's gotten so much popular. Most areas that have a very active action pistol scene generally have a league going on somewhere. As we've traveled about the country and talked to our other friends who live in other areas. I'm a recent transplant from the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. If you were to rewind three, four years ago, there was one indoor league. It was every Thursday night. There was 80 people there. It started at 6. It would run till 9 or 10 o'clock because that was the only game in town. I was going to say,
3: and that's a solid commitment. Yeah, that was, I mean,
1: and it was two stages. Like, you waited a long time to shoot for 30 seconds. Yeah. So, but it was cool because, you know, we, we got some live fire. You know, there weren't very many live fire opportunities, you know, to wear your belt, do some, you know, to get a start on a stage. And then also everybody was there. Like all of our, you know, we lived all over town, you know, so that was, it was a big social gathering. So as that became popular, it grew to the point where other ranges, I mean, the popularity of shooting grew too out since 2010. But it grew to the point where during the summer up in the Twin Cities, you can shoot USPSA within an hour of the Minneapolis Metro every weekend and three to four nights a week. Nice. During the winter, it got to that point too. That there was pretty much an indoor leak. It wasn't just Thursday anymore. You could go to X range on Tuesday night. You could go to Y range on Wednesday night. And it it exploded a lot to the point where a lot of folks were starting to say, like, man, the season never really stopped. Especially if you were a pistol shooter, like the season never really stopped. It just instead of going to ABC range, you're going to XYZ range instead. So
2: something I've been pushing and questioning within the shooting sports is one of the things I do at Vortex is work on a lot of the, like, match sponsorships and promote, promotion stuff. And I've always wondered, like, why don't we do the big matches in the south in the winter and the, the big matches up north in the summer, you know? And, like, yeah. it's actually starting to move that way now. You're seeing there's matches in Vegas in January. There's matches in uh, Utah hmm. in, in middle of December. And so it's kind of moving that way because typically, you know, in the winter we're cold and they're bearable. Dark. They're bearable, right?
0: Yeah, and, and
2: sunlight, too. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, we ridiculous just do yeah, just... But, uh, and then in the summer, it's just too dang hot down south, and so it's actually kind of moving that way, so it's nice. Like, we, we travel for matches anyways. I would rather travel down south in the winter than in the summer.
1: And would rather, like, not go to the southwest in June.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm. It mm. sounds crazy enough to work. Yeah.
0: So you brought up PCC. Let's talk about that briefly that got introduced to USPSA. I don't know enough about it. I, I, oh, I didn't even know what USPSA stood for about 5 minutes ago, but so what how does that work then? It's it's its own like subdivision within USPSA. You can use yeah. P-
2: PCC. So USPSA has a bunch of divisions. They've got single stack, they've got limited, you know, limited minor, open, production, carry optics, and revolver. And so PCCs, pistol caliber carbines. What we kind of saw was a huge, like, the AR-15 market was crazy for, like, eight years. And then there was just kind of a lot of redundancies of products that were coming out. And so I think some manufacturers were like, hey, you know, let's make 9 millimeters. It's about half the cost to shoot the ammo. Mm -hmm. It's low cost for the guns and then very low maintenance but buy in bulk, too, because your handgun shoots it. Yep, yep. So you're getting to shoot the same ammo. But one of the other big things is a lot of ranges don't allow you to shoot center fire rifles. We're very fortunate here in somewhat rural Wisconsin that any gun range around here would say, yeah, go ahead, shoot your 270 or whatever. You know, if you're close to Cincinnati or um, Kansas City, a lot of, you know, like around the country, it doesn't matter. A lot of outdoor gun ranges don't allow you to shoot rifles, hmm. um, center fire rifles. And most indoor ranges heavily limit center fire rifles. And so that basically means that you can't shoot the most common cartridge that your AR-15 is chambered in, which is two twenty-three or five five six, right? So we started to see a huge influx of pistol caliber carbines coming from manufacturers in the last, I would say, five years. And probably about four years ago, I bought my first one when I started to hear that there were talks of bringing a carbine into uh, USPSA shooting. And that happened, I think Jason Edwards and Mike Foley and some other guys decided that it would be a lot of fun and, you know what, we can add more people to the sport. And there's you know, there's plenty of theatrics still right now and plenty of drama of guys saying that, uh, yeah. you know, because even though you have separate divisions and people really shouldn't look at, like, an overall winner of a league or a match, people do. And they look at, you know, I just got beat by a guy and, You know, he has this gun and, you know, that's a rifle. It's way easier to shoot faster. And, you know, I got third overall, but I should have got first. Hmm. Even though they won their division, which is the people they were competing directly with, Mm -hmm. there still is a little bit of drama out there. But it has taken off in leaps and bounds. And now pistol caliber carbine is a way that indoor shooters in the winter or whenever uh, or at a range where you're limited to not shooting centerfire rifles, we can actually get out and practice fundamentals
0: our precision 22 is like the long range version of pistol caliber carbines yep kind of uh, same basic premise yeah. you can still be precise and have oh, a lot of the yeah, same fundamentals and the same mm-hmm. same ergonomics to work with but it's just a,
2: shooting, yep. a rimfire oh there yeah so it's it's kind of crazy because a lot of times pccs will actually move around more than your center fire rifle does because you don't have as much pressure in the cartridge to actuate a comp you know a compensator that will negate recoil or mitigate recoil what do you mean
3: move around yeah uh, uh, the
2: guns can be a little bit a little bit bit rowdier sloshy i don't know so mm, don't know what that means i uh, like it just they rock a lot more oh uh, okay but you know there's a lot of companies that make really good pccs that they've managed to limit the the movement but yeah i mean five years ago a pcc off the shelf was like oh i don't know i don't yeah. really want to shoot this that much Really? But they've... Like, well, so it seems like I've
0: got one. It took me two years to get running, right? I have a whole, like, scrap box oh, of yeah, parts that didn't work. They're
2: finicky. They can be oh, really yeah. finicky. And, you know, when you think about it, if it's an AR-9 or a, an AR-15 that's retrofitted to run 9mm, that gun was not designed to run 9mm. It was designed to run two twenty three or whatever rifle cartridge it was designed for. And so it's kind of a bandage, but everybody has ARs. And so you know it's kind of the direction that a lot of people went yeah and if you're going to use it as practice for your ar well you want the ergonomics the mag to be the button's same. in the same place safety's yeah. in the same place all that bolt release and all that but there's a lot of manufacturers out there that got it tuned in i mean pws and theory and you know jp uh, is what jp mine right. yeah jp has some amazing parts as well as some amazing rifles you got MBX and Limcat, there's, there's a handful of them. What kind that one are... that
0: you use that looks like a MAC-10?
2: That's Ethereum, yep.
0: Right, right. So, okay, so you got PCC, and then like we were saying, too, there's like the Precision 22 stuff as well, that if you're a long-range shooter, that's another, another go-around for the rules at some that's of those ranges. Huge. It's oh, getting pretty yeah. big these days. Ooh. Now, is that I don't know if that really applies so much to winter. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Well, I guess you could shoot it indoors. Yeah, so reduced target sizes... Is again, it, it, we're yeah. Going again, back, to,
2: not just dry firing. It's a game of
0: angles. It's
2: a yes. game of angles.
0: Shorter distance, smaller target. Very similar to longer distance, bigger target.
2: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, shooting a precision rifle, a half MOA target at 600 yards is three inches. Half MOA target at 100 yards is about a half an inch. It's pretty darn hard to hit, no matter what kind of gun you're using. So, a lot of the times, you'll see the precision 22 indoor leagues popping up. really those are really cool i know that we're talking like aspirins yep we're talking about starting one here at the vortex indoor range
3: oh man that sounds cool that does sound cool i mean you bring up some good stuff there you know like depending on what type of range you have access to or even just where you are geographically right i mean we're fortunate here we have a couple spots where we can shoot out to you know relatively long distances a thousand yards a couple spots where we can shoot beyond but there's a lot of Places or people just don 't even have access to you know i mean yeah. three hundred yards might be a long range for that area, mm-hmm. so all of a sudden you take a precision twenty two and you start shooting small targets out to three maybe four hundred yards you know i don 't know that'd probably be the max distance i 've ever even attempted to shoot you know right. twenty two you 're doing all the same stuff, and you don 't need the the vast landscape to set those targets out and you you don 't have, have to walk as far yeah. to set those targets out either
2: and going back a little bit to PCC like one of the really cool things that doing PCC indoor even outdoor PCC but indoor at a pistol league it allows us as shooters who are shooting three gun or action rifle or tactical shotgun or whatever we get to work on our footwork which is a huge part of the game and it's a huge thing that you can lose fast and so we're we're working on footwork indoors even though it looks like we're shooting targets as fast as we can mm-hmm. Just like I see every sight picture and, and every shot that I shoot, I actually am visualizing my steps through a stage, too. Is
3: that yeah. what you were doing? Not just me, but... what is that what you are doing when I um, saw you watching Riverdance? That was something else. Oh, yeah, that you was You said Footloose. you wouldn't talk about it. So,
0: Ruben, uh, he obviously enjoys the three-gun side of things. He keeps bringing this back to... Uh, and USPSA, sorry. He keeps bringing this back to PCC, and I keep bringing it back to Precision 22s. <laughs> you could do the same thing also with you know, loading the bipod on a Precision Mm -hmm. 22, you know, and getting in the proper proper prone position or whatever position is. So much of shooting
2: has to do with fundamentals. With the set, yeah. It's your setup, it's your sight picture, it's your trigger press, but it's also about getting into certain positions. You know, a big part of PRS isn't necessarily hitting a 6-inch target at 600 yards. It's doing it off of a barricade or it's doing it off of, you know, a chain that's hung between two posts. And you're halfway is kneeling, but not quite kneeling because it's just a little too high. And so a lot of that is building a position and building that, your support for the shot. And the shot is just the end result.
0: Yeah, realistically
2: speaking, I
0: mean, the amount of space you need to do everything that you can do in a shooting competition is however many square feet you take up with your rifle. Exactly. You know, and Rube, you're doing this keto thing, so you're going to take up even less square feet. Gosh, I hope so. Soon. But I mean... Once the bullet leaves the end of the barrel, you can't do anything about it. Everything that you can do about it is at the gun. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, when you're indoors or or wherever you are, you can you can work on that. Sorry, Rube, you gave
2: me a face. Dude, just, No, that's good. Now I'm held to it. <laughs> People are going to be emailing me. It's right, be, right. It's crazy.
0: What else do you guys do in the wintertime? I've got. I wrote down two other things here, but I want to also hear what you guys brought to the table because I've got you. You reevaluate your gear. And then you also I put one down practicing milling targets too mm-hmm. utilizing uh, even if you got like a solo r t with a reticle in it mill practicing a just milling anything you know which is essentially, is essentially essentially usually using, using the mrad system or m o a system in order to to determine an accurate range for something do
2: you want a mill a man <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys got, or maybe you can speak to those reevaluating gear and practicing r- Rube, targets. Rube and I
3: both have two little girls, so frozen jokes are always pretty funny. <laughs> Right,
1: right. <laughs> well, Rube alluded to it a little bit. One of the things that I do specifically, and it wasn't my idea, I picked it up from uh, from a guy named Jerry, but I actually take the winter as a time to cross-train on a different gun. I will very specifically, after the quote-unquote last match of the year, put all the guns that I shoot all summer away, and I pick up a completely different one. I'll shoot a completely different class of pistol and work on applying myself to something different you know something that maybe is a is a heavier shooting caliber so instead of a nine millimeter go to a 45 something that carries less ammunition so I have to reload more so I can work those fundamentals when I do get live fire reps just working on you know and then so you start shooting something that you have to reload a lot recoils more puts you back in touch with well did I get a little sloppy on my grip
2: yeah, like into perfect example you said was reloading, right? So if we were talking about pistol shooting, and I'm used to my STI 2011 with a big old mag well, big funnel that sucks the mag right up in it, might as well be a vacuum. Mag vacuum, yeah, mag vac. Okay, and now is, I is that whoa, is that trademarked? Not yet. Oh,
3: all right. But uh note to self, I just wrote it down. It's ours. Okay.
2: So I shot this match a few years ago called the NRA World Shooting Championship, and that was. Uh, sponsored by NRA Shooting Sports, and they wanted to kind of see who was one of the best all-around shooting athletes in the world. So you had big names there like Greg Jordan and Jerry Michalik and the Yakleys, and, you know, there's all kinds of people out there that that are very accomplished shooters. And some of them, you know, were more focused on trap shooting. Some of them were more focused on PRS. Some of them were high-power shooters. And they kind of wanted to see, like, where do the best all-around shooters come from? And really like a guy like Jerry Mitchellick is a perfect candidate for something like that, right? Because he's done revolver, he's done skeet shooting, he's done hunting, he's done three gun, he's done pistol, you name it. And so we were given stage guns to use. And so it was one, one morning was uh, three gun and high power and skeet. And then the next day was 22 and cowboy action and bullseye. And so. Wow. We were, we we're shooting stage guns, and
3: the interesting thing about those stage guns too is you really kind of lose your home court advantage. Yeah, yeah, like totally. all that all that <laughs> yeah. familiarity, familiarity. Everybody knows it. what I'm talking about yep. with the, the words. Nailed it. Um, familiarity, been all the working, family, all the family you've been trying to build up—it's gone. Like, I mean, you get you get all that practice, you know, which is going to apply to what you're doing, but some of yeah. that, some of those finer points, you're going to lose that. So, yeah. So, perfect example is
2: they they made an announcement, like, we're going to use FN long slide 9s. So it was a F FNS 9L or something like that for one of the pistol stages. So a bunch of us went out and, like, bought FNS long slide 9s <laughs> to try and get familiar. And then we didn't actually even use that. It was a different gun. So, and it could be a different, you know, I could have this facts a little bit mixed up, but it was something to that effect, right? And so... Reloading a handgun is something that we practice in our basements, and we get familiar with it. And um, That's the word. Yes, exactly. And so now all of a sudden you have to reload a different pistol, and you're like looking at the mag well, and you're looking at your hand as you go down, and you're watching it go in every time, and then you press back into the target. You should be doing that every time with your own pistol, but it's not until you cross-train with a different platform until that you actually watch that happen. Oh, so,
0: because you're so far out of your comfort zone, you're, you're going super you're re, deliberate, you're super hyper focused. Yes, but you should and, be doing that every day. But you time. always you hmm. should do, and that's why I think people say beginner's luck is a thing. Because when you're a beginner, you're like hyper focused on. Yeah, you soak up everything everybody tells you. Totally, absolutely. And it's like, okay, they told me to do this. I'm. That's all I know is just do that. And
3: then, as soon as you get good at it, you're kind of like, I got this. Yeah, it. really... That's interesting because I. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, you know, whatever in football, you know, like wide receiver, they say, look that football in. And you see when some guys don't do it, you know, they take their eyes off the oh, ball, yeah. you kind of take, but they're also, you know, pros. I almost feel like there's like a compromise there. Like in some ways you through all that practice with the stuff that you're used to using, you get some liberty to not have to look that in and maybe gain some speed out of that. I don't know. You guys can speak to that way better than I mm, one, Yeah, I think but it's, it's a
2: big balance of speed versus slop. Yeah, and it's you push it to the edge a lot of times.
1: And that's sacrilege for a lot of guys to do that on purpose. You know, if we were to talk to some of our other Vortex team shooters, they shoot one pistol. That's don't all touch they have. One. Mm-hmm. They I've won't brought, touch another
2: one. I brought guns to the range before and been like, dude, you want to shoot my new pistol? And they're like, nope, nope, get that away from take me. Take that thing out of my pull sight. Hold the cross and the spike up and get that away from me. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. But I take it as a chill. No names. You know? It's a snapshot in time. It just kind of gives you a, It's a bit of a gut check. Mm-hmm. You know, to be like, okay, well, where am I at? Did I did I get sloppy on that one? Or, you know, when you get good with the, the gun that's harder to shoot, when you go back to the other one.
2: Sometimes, though, you find yourself being more deliberate. Like, there's a match yeah. next weekend that I'm probably not going to shoot my shotgun at. And I know that I will watch those magazine reloads go up in every time until it seats, and I'll feel the click because I'm just not comfortable doing it by my mm-hmm. memory. So, yeah. I've had matches where I've switched a gun a week before, and had some of the best performances ever for me. Hmm. Let's transition to long range guys too. We'll go back and forth,
0: kind of like a. What do you think about those guys cross training and doing different things like that with different rifles, different triggers, you know, yeah. and different things like different, different bolt handles, different, different mount, uh, di-
1: different yeah. mount, change the comb on your stock a little bit. I've yeah.
2: seen guys that really good example. Midwest dude named Tyler Payne who shoots for the Army Marksmanship Unit now, one of the best PRS shooters in the country, he shoots PRS gas gun the whole year while he's also shooting PRS bolt gun matches. And I've seen people go like, "Uh, I'm not focusing on this this year. I'm just going to focus on bolt gun. And then it's like Tyler just won both series overall, right? Like this is last year, but you know what I mean? Like it proves that you can go back and forth. Mm Mm-hmm. Very interesting, but it all goes back to fundamentals, mm-hmm. and more of it is in your mind than you think, yep, and feeling the gun,
1: so knowing yeah. knowing the gun mm-hmm. and uh and what it needs and and how to how to get it to put the
0: bullet where you want it to go precisely. what else you guys got that you do in the winter? you do that trekker match Adam I do that's uh, pretty cool that came out of uh
1: well it came out of a reality of the north here that eventually the ground freezes, and we can't. We can't set targets into the dirt anymore because the nails won't go in. So we actually, uh, basically, I I based it off of a type of motorcycle racing, but it's uh, basically a cross-country race with shooting where you run, you know, like cross-country in high school, and then there's checkpoints where they do shooting. People will
2: actually run just running, not for any other purpose?
1: Yeah, uh, it's weird. But, you know, all of a sudden you get get guys with guns and like, hey, well, we could do this in the winter and, like, it's cold so you won't sweat. I'm like, all right, we'll give that a try. Guys who would never run for any other reason, they'll they'll put their tactical vest on and go out and run just get out. after it. Yeah. Now, is this like sounds a – like
0: a
3: biathlon on your feet. Yes. Yep. Not skis. Is it a circular track or is it mm-hmm. like, a, like a cross country, like you'd be going through maybe trails or something like that?
1: Uh, the way I did it with the facility that we had access to – We basically set out a course that was about three-quarters of a mile, and then it was a circular loop, and then there were four checkpoints on that loop. The only way you could get points was to hit targets. You could only shoot at targets for a fixed amount of time. It was like, uh, I believe it was like 30 seconds. many targets you can shoot in 30 seconds? It's kind of like a
2: pro-am, right? Yep. Where you have a ton of targets set up, and however many you knock down is however many you get. You don't necessarily get penalized for targets left standing. Mm -hmm. You you just get credit for the ones you knocked over. Kind of like bowling.
1: And then we gave everybody two hours to do as many laps as they wanted. And then also we made the target point values descend from the beginning. So they're descending in value for about about five points a target for the first three laps. And then all of a sudden they spike back up again at the end. So it was a bit of a – competitors had a bit of a decision between Tortoise and the Hare. Were they going to try and get their hits early on when they were rested, when they really counted? Or were they just going to try and burn as many laps as they could? And then we added in that you have to carry everything that you want to use. So any anything you want to use during that two hours, you have to carry with you. You have to start with. So then they also yeah, have to That's got to be a of, lot of ammo, right? Yeah. So guys are carrying 300 rounds of rifle, 200 rounds of pistol, trying to, like, wall, you know. And then some of us, the last time, we were digging them out of the ground. Like in USPSA and 3-gun, and you have to unload, show clear. So a lot of guys will just rack the slide, let that bullet fall on the ground. Some guys were so low on ammo, they were like digging through the ground, like brushing up nine mil off off the ground and putting it in their mags because they needed they needed a couple more rounds to get through the next checkpoint.
0: That's wild. So that totally Didn't, fits with the like winter snowy theme.
3: Just kind of that apocalyptic feel where you're just
1: it's it's a lot of fun.
3: Well, it seems like you know, like you said, oftentimes it's cold outside. One of the reasons you don't want to go outside is because it's cold. I bet you warm up right away doing that. Oh yeah, yep. And that you, God, that does sound it's like the vortex interesting. extreme of. Winter it is. It is. Yeah. Sports. Yeah. And I bet, like you said, you know, you start running around there a little bit. I bet that really introduces some interesting fatigue elements, fogging on glasses, fogging yes. on glasses, heart um, rate. Guns, I mean,
1: guns work differently. Oil properties are different in the winter, so oh yeah, some guns right. stop working. There's no jackets for sure. Those go right out the window. Packs. You know, it was vests versus packs. Some guys were showing up with their tactical vests and. A lot of like Everly stock packs. So that was that was what I ended up using. I have an Everly stock pack with a mm-hmm. sheath in the back. Mm-hmm. Mm. All all kinds of uh theories on load bearing equipment and uh nutrition and water too. Like how much of that were you gonna bring with you? And it was it was cool. It had there was a lot of strategy to it. It was it's a really fun event.
2: It's pretty sweet. I want to talk a little bit about gear selection because that is yes. you know, a lot of times. And then the last thing after that I want to talk about
0: is predator hunting too. Oh, nice. Ooh. Gear selection first.
2: Yeah, was a I mean,
0: just a was short... A just same a, podcast we're already in.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, we're always trying to push the limits for speed. Like, it's a combination of speed and accuracy, but we're always looking for gear that's lighter, faster, stronger. Not quite to the point of your brother, Dave, but, like, yeah, we're always... he's yeah, still pretty light. Know, he's just yeah. weird. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, my six-pound rifle, I passed to him, and he goes, eh, it's kind of heavy. but <laughs> um, It's hard to be around him. If he wasn't so nice.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I kinda wish
2: he was a douche sometimes. So we're always see that on the pocket. Dang it. The filter is gone. I like it. All right. We're kind of trying to figure out what worked for us during the past season and what didn't work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have gear that it just doesn't work and so you're forced to make a mid season change you know something breaks or something just doesn't feel right but usually we're kind of leaving gear selection for the downtime Mm -hmm. you know it is kind of one thing that guys we've talked to i've talked to guys like nick miller and daniel jurassic and um some of our friends like ryan reed down texas arkansas you know florida guys that are if they make a change like they probably have a match the next week and so they don't have a whole lot of time to get used to equipment whereas If I change the shotgun shell caddies that I use or the pistol holster or magazines for a PCC or whatever, or an optic change, you know, something new comes out and we want to switch to something new, Mm. I actually get a pretty good amount of time both dry firing and then testing new gear, which is a big part of the off-season. And I actually do clean guns in the winter, so... Oh, you do?
3: Yeah, I don't... Yeah. I don't like admitting it, but... Hmm. Now, when you say clean... A gun.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't is follow. It
3: like, can you... I don't. Well, so Mark,
2: yeah, what you would do is you'd disassemble it and use a, a cleaning agent in, you know, like a a brass brush or something like that, maybe a rag. You would typically go down in the basement or in the garage and you would use those solutions to clean the powder fouling and stuff off of the firearm.
3: Hmm,
2: interesting. It's mm. People say it's... that it proves that it can... Increase function. I think
3: it's one of those. I I think it's a a fad. I think if you're bored, you could... Just let him... I follow. I I adhere to a strict, it'll be fine policy. Just let him have it. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are jerks. Let's talk about predator hunting
0: real quick, though. That's another thing you can do in the winter. That's That's a good one for the winter. That's a good way to... Man, you're going to have to pull together all your marksmanship fundamentals. Yep. To hit those little guys, because you're talking about coyote hunting. That happens in the winter. They ain't big,
3: no, and they're usually on the move, and it's not a given. I tell you what, I mean that's one thing that really stood out to me. The first coyote when I finally ever when I finally killed one, this is several years ago, but I skinned it out, and then I realized why I was missing them all the darn time. Their chest cavity at their widest point is quite small. I mean, you're looking. I don't, you know, I guess I've never taped one out, but you're probably looking at about. Six inches, maybe. Yeah, before six to I, eight. I don't know. Before I ever actually saw one, I always thought they were as size of like huskies. Yeah, they're not. With the fur on, they are. I'm sure you know. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of guys that are cutting fur out there. But uh, yeah, small targets. They're fast. You know, I mean, they're oftentimes coming in hot. You know, we're talking about three gun here with with multiple you know, using multiple firearms. I mean, I know a lot of guys that you know, they carry a shotgun and an AR, or a shotgun and a bolt gun. You get a dog that's burning in hot and coming in tight, mm-hmm. you know, that shotgun is pretty darn handy to have. You, you know, doubles, it, you know It
2: really, really tests your cognition and your ability to observe what's happening, create a solution for it and execute that solution. Mm-hmm. Right. So if it's you have an elevated heart rate. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's cold. So but yeah, I mean Perfect situation, you're calling, dog comes in, peeks over the hill at 540. Number one, you don't know it's 540, so you got to range it. Mm -hmm. Number two, you got to grab your gun, check if it's first focal plane or second focal plane, figure out your drop for that distance, make a shot, right? And so there's a lot that goes into it. If the dog hasn't moved already. Yes. And uh, it can be a huge training aid for shooters, whether it be military law enforcement professional, whether it be competitive shooter, it's just. It's so good for you.
1: My my three gun rifle is my coyote yep. rifle. Like, yep, add suppressor, and that's it. Guys, call in on the phone. Like, what's what's a good coyote hunting scope? Like, Razor One Six.
0: That's what right. To tell them. Strike Eagle One to Eight doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. an eighteen inch or is that your SBR? My SBR. SBR. I'm, right now. I'm on. about that shorty life. All about that. Now, predator hunting happens pretty much year round, but a lot of people do the coyote hunting, especially in the winter,
3: because. I mean, I like to do it in the winter because their hides are good. Right. Mm-hmm. You okay. Know? And, that's, and you can see them. And you can see them. And it's something that, you know, when you get into like the fall, right? Or even, you know, August through, well, heck, even August through December, or even, I mean, there's hunts that, you know, big game hunts that are outside of that or other. And it's way other more seasons. exciting than the NBA. Well, there's that too. But it's something you can kind of fill that downtime winter void with, you know, that you encounter, yeah. you know, sometimes with the shooting sport or, you know. Hunt year round. Yeah. Hunt and,
1: year round. And year as a training aid. The season or lack thereof is long enough, and the bag limit or lack thereof is big enough that you can do it a lot mm-hmm. I mean you could call deer hunting a a training aid, but like you you only get a couple tags right right, whereas, whereas I mean dog crews they what are they twenty forty a yeah. season you know if Powder really hounds, man, it. so
2: dude, if you look at some dudes out west, like there's <laughs> a guy <Is> that <laughs> absolute warlocks absolutely. Yeah, there's there's guys that I follow out west that are you know they'll have two hundred plus dogs in a season, and it's they're yeah. probably in areas that they have a little more access to hunting them, or they have land that you know they've locked down for hunting coyotes for years and years. But but yeah, there are guys that
3: absolutely get on it. Yeah, I mean, you talk about you know your three gun rifle being. A good coyote gun, man. You'd be hard-pressed to beat an AR for coyote hunting. I mean, they're they're super fast. They're way accurate nowadays. Well, oh, the barrels. you know, yeah. mm. Barrels
1: that come on a lot of ARs now are way better than what, what you're buying on an off-the-shelf deer, you know, bolt-action rifle. Right.
3: You mm. know, I mean, your follow-up shots, you know, I mean, oftentimes, you know, you're calling in multiple dogs. The first one, you might get a standing shot, but I doubt you're going to get a standing shot on the second one, you know, so you're... Yeah.
0: We talked to Anthony Ametine. He's a big-time coyote hunter. He uses ARs most of the time. You go to his page, Dot Ametine, you'll see a lot of dead dogs and pigs. TX
2: killer. TX killer. Yeah, there. The, the AR is, and I went to Texas and hog hunted this spring, did some coyote hunting, went out to Wyoming, did some prairie dog hunting, did coyote hunting back here, obviously compete with it. The AR is, like, it's such a adaptive and unique modular platform that you can do like anything with.
3: Mm -hmm. That it is. Well, and Adam brought up something using also as one to six, and I think a lot of people, I think for some reason with predator hunting, it's kind of gotten into people's heads that you need an ultra long range scope. And I think there's definitely a lot of scenarios where that can be handy, but I think in most scenarios, you could probably get by with a nice either mid-range scope, you know, something in that 3 to fifteen, four to 16 range. Particularly because the versatility or, or the variety of shots, particularly if you're only can carry the one firearm, can be, you know, three feet or three hundred yards. Oh, yeah. You know. So Well, um, you know, and it's funny that I just brought up Anthony too,
0: Hammentine, because in our podcast with him is one of the first podcasts we did, I was asking him about he uses the Razor one to six and the PST Gen two one to six. I asked him what power he uses it on most of the time. One. Yeah. He said he almost never never bumps it up from one. And that's out to like three hundred. He just, mm. that's where he keeps it.
1: Like on the sales side, a lot of times guys are calling in and we're usually talking them down a size of scope. They're
0: like,
1: mm-hmm. oh, I'm look I'm thinking at that, that six to 24. Like, well, look, how about that four to 16? Or, you know, for deer hunting scope, well, I, I want that four to 16, you know, in case I have to shoot 300 yards. Well, maybe, maybe that two and a half to 10 would probably be a better idea for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I mean, well, we went prairie dog hunting in Wyoming this summer and uh, most guys call in, they think they need, you know, the really powerful scopes to but we were shooting prairie dogs with one to sixes
2: and two I to tens. I shot four rounds out of Virgil's gun with a two to two to ten PST gen two and I shot two rounds out of the six five with a five to twenty five Gen two. And I think I shot fifteen hundred rounds with my AR.
1: Yeah. And I was fifteen hundred rounds through through a two to ten on an AR. So Hold
2: on,
0: and you were using one to sixes you said and yeah. yeah. yep. two to ten. Yep one to 2 tens. Yeah. yeah Yeah. my farthest yeah okay whatever fake news (laughs) (laughs) it's on the gram it's cool i'm I'm kidding i I believe you i
2: got video whatever yeah yeah
0: yeah. i know they're dead no it's cool fantastic what do you say i think we talked about some really great things that people can use in the winter how about we go into a quick round of last calls cool my last call will be check out keto Roots doing it meat and veggies what's wrong with that Nothing wrong with that, that's just clean living. You know I say that though, and I'm about to slam a burrito tonight with rice and beans and a tortilla and chips. I would never give that God, up. I hate you. Check out keto though. <laughs> hey, uh, no,
3: it's good for you
2: though <laughs> my my last call have a plan going into off season whether it be whether you be down south and you don't shoot as much in the summer because of the heat and you shoot more in the winter. Have a plan going into your off season uh if you're up north, figure out some ways that you can stay sharp. But the middle of December, early January is going to sneak up on you, and you're not going to have any ammo reloaded for the next year. That's another thing we do is reload ammo. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, mm,
1: yeah.
2: Um, we have a podcast on that. <laughs> yep, yep, check them out. But, you know, before you know it, you're going to be back into the next season. You're going to have all your gear. It's all still dirty. Your guns haven't been cleaned. Mark and if you don't know what you're going to do and then have a plan for dry firing. If you don't know what you're going to do, it's going to sneak past and you're going to go into the next season either behind where you ended last year or on the same par. And you want to use that offseason to get better.
3: Yep. I'd say my last call is, I'm going to let Adam go last because I think his is going to be better than mine, but I'm still trying to figure out what last call is. So We do a thing called last call and yeah.
2: I'm just kind like,
3: of like just a, a wrap-up, just a wrap-up thought. Follow your I'm hurt. just I'm just stalling. Follow your heart. I'll give you some time. Jim, we're sitting with, with some pretty serious shooters right here. Yes. Some guys that are next level, they shoot a ton, a variety of different competition style events, disciplines. You know, I'm not that guy, but a lot of what we've talked about here I think applies to everybody at some level and we hit on this early on. But just the familiar familiarity. There you go again. With your with your equipment is a big deal. You know, mm. do some dry fire. Get more familiar with that trigger. Get more familiar with your equipment. The way the gun feels. And, you know, and for some people, like like some people who
0: just you know they let the gun sit in the safe all year and then mm-hmm. they pull it out once a year. I can't think of any time that that would ever happen. But 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 if that did ever happen, make sure your gun works. That's a good idea too. That helps. Like I said I can't think of why anybody would ever do that but yeah. make sure your gun works.
1: my last call would be try something new you know try something new technique wise equipment wise to uh to push yourself forward or if you're pretty established in in whatever sport you're doing it's still fun like try something different change it up keep it fresh to there's there's lots of fun guns to shoot out there you don't just have to stick to one so try something new technique wise or or change up if you do have access to some shooting in the winter try something a little bit different to to push your boundaries out a little bit.
3: I'm, my I'm gonna, second
2: last call is that Mark should build his AR. Oh, I second that
3: second last call. That's that's really where this is gone, huh? Yep. You know what? I'm I'm gonna just, do it just to spite you guys. They cycle themselves. I don't think you will?
1: You don't. You don't have to turn it.
3: Yeah. And you can use oh, that. New, shoot all week. My new rifle only has like a forty degree bolt throw on it. 40, yeah, but sixty. It's I like mean, chemistry. That's like, and that's stuff, like not like even it. that much turning. I don't even... It's practically an autoloader.
0: Uh, it's not, though. But it's not, because you still have to do something.
2: Oh, and the other thing is, even for hunters, dry fire your deer hunting rifle.
3: Oh, exactly. I cannot yeah.
2: count... I cannot tell you how many times a customer has brought a gun in, and I've said, hey, like, you know, can I, can I dry fire it? Can I check it out and <clears throat> make sure it's empty and check it out? And it's like, oh, man, that's a pretty heavy trigger. And, like, you can get used to a heavy trigger if you dry fire it.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I-, I thought you were about to bring up the fact how some of them come in and their guns are loaded. No. And then we find out when we ask, hey, can we dry fire it? And we open it up and, oh, that wouldn't have been a dry fire. That would have been a very wet fire. When I worked retail, we actually had a pickle jar full of, of ammo
1: that we took out of guns that came in the store.
3: <sighs> it was like a swear jar but even worse. That's a good thing going back to fundamentals. Go back to those basic safety fundamentals every yes. time. Yes. Particularly when you're with yeah, people absolutely. who you might not know. Yes. Well, I
0: think we nailed it on that one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hopefully, you guys all this winter could take some information from this and uh, put it towards becoming an even better shooter. and surprise everybody out there on the range and the competition. When you come out and you're even better after the winter, they're going to wonder what the heck you did. They're going to want to know what Rexquando you took, what dojo you went to, and you can tell them it was a Vortex Nation podcast. All right. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. That's all we got.
2: Bye.